This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. For my white brothers, sisters out there, if you're hearing a person of color tell you something and you your body's reacting a certain way because you haven't heard like somebody, you know, asking you something a certain way before, um, monitor that. Like that's that's some issue that you have to like work out. Um, uh, and, and just think about like, why am I responding this way? Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the first 2021 Friday Forum from Downtown On The Go. Uh, Downtown On The Go is the advocate and resource for all things transportation in Tacoma. My name is Laura Swanzerich. Uh, I am the Commute Trip Reduction and Advocacy Coordinator at Downtown On The Go. Um, And I want to sincerely thank all of you for being here with us today for this important conversation. The theme for the 2021 Forum Series is Racism in Transportation Policy. And today we'll be diving in to how urban design can perpetuate racist systems. I wanna thank our media sponsor, Channel 253, for their support. The podcast Crossing Division with Evelyn Lopez will continue this conversation on an upcoming episode. This forum is being recorded by TV Tacoma and will be aired several times next week. There will be a Q&A section at the end of the forum. You can submit your questions at any time using the Q&A function on Zoom. Without further ado, I would like to introduce our moderator, Tanisha Jumper. Tanisha is the Media and Communications Director for the City of Tacoma and has moderated these forums for the past four years. Tanisha, I pass things over to you. Thanks, Laura. I'm glad to be with everybody for, I think this is my fourth year. Uh, I saw Hallie in the audience and uh, this is my first one without Hallie. So shout outs to Hallie and uh, to the new team, Laura and Emily for setting this up. Um, really exciting conversation today, and I'm very lucky to have um, two of my colleagues and a new friend, Crystal, joining me today for a really, really um, interesting conversation. These always go way faster than um, it feels like. It feels like, oh, we've got a whole hour, we've got lots to talk about, um, but it always goes um, a lot quicker. So we're going to jump right into the conversation, and I want to thank Nick Baird from the City of Tacoma. Lauren Flemister from City of Seattle, um, former City of Tacoma uh, uh, colleague and ally, and Crystal Monteros from the Commission on Disabilities for joining me. And we're going to just um, jump right into it. So um, I'm going to start with you, Nick. Uh, tell us about your work and how you see the built environment and urban design impacting people's daily lives throughout the city of Tacoma. Thanks, Tanisha. It's great to be here. Uh, my name is Nick Byard. I'm the Assistant Chief Equity Officer the city of Tacoma. And our job in our office is to ensure equity in service delivery, decision-making, and community engagement. And so we're always thinking about equity in all things, and the built environment is a big part of that. Um, The work that we do in our office really starts with making sure that our workforce reflects our community, because the decision-makers that end up translating policy into actual practice bring their, their lens and their experience and their backgrounds with them. Um, and so if we are a workforce that reflects the community that we're serving at all levels, 
uh, we're going to have more equitable outcomes for people. Um, and I'm sure we're going to get more into this, but you know, the just the, the the general impact of the built environment stems from the original theft of land of Native people and theft of labor of, of, of Africans and African Americans, um, and the legacy of that is is has played out to the point where we see massive wealth disparities and major segregation in American cities. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get into the details of that, but that um, that for me is at the heart of um, at the heart of this conversation. Thanks, Nick. I'm going to turn it over to you, Lauren. Tell us a little bit about what you do and how do you see um, the, how, see urban design affect people's lives on a daily basis? Thanks, Tanisha. Um, my name is Lauren Fumster, as Tanisha said. I work for the City of Seattle in the Office of Planning and Community Development, and I uh, manage the community planning program uh, for the city. Oh, man, huge question. Um, if you think about it, the built environment is literally how we exist and show up in the world, how we navigate the world. Um, and so um, my role is really about um, hearing what the community says that they want um, to change in their neighborhood um, and trying to partner with um, other agencies uh, at the city, within the county, um, and also work with um, community leaders and community organizations to help um, make positive change. Um, and I think um, kind of speaking to this conversation, what's really important is um, sort of letting community lead um, and trying a way to trying to figure out a way to do that well in um, a structure that tends to want to be top down. Um, and as we'll talk about today, I think that's created a lot of um, residual harm and damage in our communities. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to delve into this conversation and thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I think it's interesting what you said when you were started talking and thinking about like how like a library tells you exactly how to behave like just by the by going into it and I think environment is the same way it kind of signals to you what you're allowed to do or not allowed to do there who's welcome and who's not welcome and so yeah we'll definitely talk about that more and with that I, I want to invite Crystal to tell us a little bit about who she is and what she does and um, you know how do you see um, the urban planning and design affect people's daily lives. Yes, um, my name is Kristen Jaros. I am vice chair of the Tacoma Area Commission on Disabilities. And so a lot of what I do is, so I'm a wheelchair user. No, you can't really tell right now, but <laughs> um, a lot of what I do is centered around um, basically just trying to get, my my whole vision is universal design. And um that would basically mean like when I would go outside, there's nothing blocking my way <laughs> as a wheelchair user, you know, like, yeah. um, and I do a lot of work with like with the sidewalks, like making sure there are sidewalks everywhere because uh, believe it or not that a lot of times people don't think about it, but like on one side of the street, there could be a sidewalk on the other side of the street, there's no sidewalk. So, which basically, if you really think about it with me, it's like, I'm only allowed on one side of the street. 
and I'm not allowed to go on the other side of the street. I got to figure out my way, you know, Mm -hmm. like people don't think about that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, like it's, it's like you're keeping certain people away from certain areas, you know, and it, that's not true equality, you know? And so that's, that's a lot of the work that I do was with the sidewalks, the curb cuts, you know, in, in order for me to be able to cross that street and, you know, that kind of stuff, um, making sure they're everywhere. Um, aside from that, inside the buildings and stuff, um, being able to go to the bathroom when you're inside of a grocery store, mm-hmm. you know, like being able to get to that, that toilet, being able to get on that toilet. And there, there's so many times I go into that they'll say they have the accessible stall. And like, I can get into the accessible stall, but I can't close the door (laughs) because of the way that it's built. So it's like (laughs) little things like that. And that's all the work that I do. So, All right. This is going to be a great, great conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so um, Lauren, we're going to, I'm going to come back to you. Um, What role does urban planning and design, and maybe for people who don't really understand the term of urban planning and design, if you could explain that. Um, how does it create disparate um, outcome in, um, in access for communities of color? Great, and thank you for asking me to define because <laughs> we tend to get a little wonky and <laughs> start using acronyms and everyone's like, what are you talking about? Um, so urban planning is um, really um, about planning for how land is used um, and developed. Um, so that's a big, um, it's a big field. There's lots of different kinds of, of planning. There's transportation planning, there's community development. Um, so there's a lot of different um, ways you can go. There's economic development uh, planning. Um, so um, because it's, you know, because it's about how all land is used, it touches every part of every community. Um, and because of that, it's been a really, um, it's been a really, uh, huge, uh, dictator of how government can mistreat its residents and how it can create, um, negative outcomes and have sort of historic harm, uh, mm-hmm. particularly for communities of color. Um, I think, uh, something that folks have become increasingly familiar with over the last, you know, five to 10 years is redlining, which was the systemic um, sort of disenfranchisement and um, economic exclusion of communities of color. So what would happen is, um, and this was happening at all levels of government, what would happen is folks would look at a map of the city, figure out where the white folks live and then figure out, okay, where are Asian folks, where are black folks in the places where um, black folks were, or, you know, Asian folks or native folks lived, they would downgrade those areas and say that they literally uh, were less valuable. And so imagine over time how this impacts, um, you know, wealth building, how it creates disinvestment, how it creates lack of oppor- opportunities from an entrepreneurial standpoint, because they're in, they're intrinsically saying because those people are here, this place 
is not, a, it's a bad place. Um, it's not a place that's worthy of being invested in and lifted up. So over time, even though, um, you know, people were able to get into homes and, and become part of the quote unquote American dream, um, over time, um, their appreciation didn't match what you would see in white communities. Um, and this is not just true for housing, but it's also true for commercial space, the whole lifeblood of a community. Um, so that's one that people are really familiar with, but I think something else that's something that you see in every community in America, essentially all over the states is how urban, urban infrastructure is a dividing line between class and race. So you see with, you know, in the um, 1950s, as the highway system starts coming in, they raised communities. So not only did it destroy communities, but typically what would happen on one side of the quote unquote tracks or the highway. So it could be rail, it could be highway. Um, you would have uh, a clear sort of distinction in class and race. That's true mm -hmm. in Tacoma. Um, it's true in Seattle. Um, it's true in, you know, New York City. It's true everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a really distinct way that sort of urban form, urban design literally di dictates who is going to have access and who is not. Um, and I think something else that I want to touch on, because I know we need to move on to the next question, is how policies, programs, and practices after these things are built impact um, access for people mm -hmm. of color. So how spaces are um, maintained, how they're uh, enforced or policed mm -hmm. um, creates a sense of who's welcome, who's, who has a feeling of safety, um, who gets harassed. Um, mm -hmm. So the, how the form is then used, how the urban form is then used can dictate um, you know, racist outcomes. So um, just to follow up on that, are there new practices or, or kind of emerging um, areas of thought that um, are kind of combating some of that? Yeah, thank goodness, or else I, I think I'd have to quit my job. Um, so I think it's something simple, but it's at the heart, I think, of how we fix this is there's been an opening up of this profession um, to include more people of color, people of different abilities, um, when women, you know, gender non-binary folks. Um, so that's part of it, just having different voices, um, you know, in the air and having different people sitting at the table um, and also having policymakers and decision makers or so elected officials also coming from a broader spectrum um, of experiences and backgrounds. And something else that's really exciting, partly because of this is you're seeing um, more of a centering of community-led um, efforts and a really intentional kind of planning that seeks to create um, racial and ethnic-centered public uh, space and placemaking. So mm -hmm. it's like, what does it mean to have a space that's about Blackness? What does it mean to have a space that celebrates LGBTQ folks? What does it mean um, to center universal design and make sure that everyone truly can come into a space and navigate it and be a full participant in what a space has to offer. That's great. I want to remind the audience that if you hear something that you want to follow up on, don't hesitate to put that question 
in the Q&A. If you have a comment, you can also put that in the Q&A. And if we have a chance, we'll get to those as well. Um, uh, Crystal, I want to um, move over to you. Um, how, how do decisions and investments in infrastructure affect residents' access and quality of life? You mentioned it a little bit in your, in your opening comments. And, and as an advocate, advocate, what is your advice to help people navigate that? And, and what, are, what are some of like the lessons you've learned in trying to get things like curb cuts and, and sidewalks um, put in throughout the city? Yeah, um, to me, I mean, a lot of times when it comes to, like I separate buildings and um, like, you know, buildings, like I was saying with the bathrooms and all that, um, and just kind of like doorways and stuff like that. I separate those from like sidewalks and curb cuts and things. Um, but when it comes to the buildings and all that, the way those are built and, or even when they're being remodeled or anything like that, from the beginning, when the modeling and everything is taking place, in my opinion, before it even starts to be changed or remodeled or, <laughs> or like the thoughts are taking place, like the, you know, all the plans are being made and all that stuff. When all that stuff is going down, in my opinion, that's when you need to not just think that you're talking to an expert or think that you're talking to somebody who went to school or, you know, something like that. Like, Mm -hmm. I, you need to go to a person with actual disabilities mm -hmm. who actually has that experience and say, is this going to work for you? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> and that's one thing that we've been advocating for with the Commission on Disabilities is like not necessarily just think like, oh, I've been working in the field for this long, but we've been saying like, go to the actual source and the person with the disability and ask them, is this going to work for you? Mm -hmm. You know, like, but ask them before you even start to make the changes, because then like, if you do it before you make the changes, then you won't have to worry about redesigning it. You won't have to worry about extra cost in, you know, <laughs> doing all that stuff. And you'll know from the very start how much it's going to cost, you know, and what you're going to have to do. You know, so going straight to the source of the people who are actually going to need it and keeping us in mind from the very beginning, mm -hmm. you know, but th that's my opinion for the buildings and everything. But in the same thing for the curb cuts and crosswalks and all that stuff, too. Like if anything is being changed, then going to have not even people in wheelchairs but, you know, people who are blind and having them check out whatever changes are being made and all, to see if it works for them, to mm -hmm. see if you actually did it right. Because so many I've seen so many situations where it's like the construction workers are think that everything is in code, think that they did everything right. But then I'm the one going out there to go test it out. And it's like, no, I can't. Like it, me with all the ability that I have as a person with a disability, I still can't make it up the hill because you were like half a centimeter off mm -hmm. because they were trying to get the job done so fast. Right. You know, and they have to, con you know, redo it over again. But I mean, if you actually work with the people the whole way through. Yeah. 
Um, I have an additional kind of added question. Um, mm -hmm. How does how does like the experience of someone with disabilities and then also in race kind of connect? Because I think when we think about where investments are made and how investments are, I mean, if you're a person with disabilities and you happen to be in a community of color or in a low income area like that, how did that all um, kind of compound feels like? A lot of times, a lot of times in our conversations that we have with the Commission on Disabilities, we talk about redlining a lot in terms of, you know, disabilities and everything too. Um, with me, for example, I, so I live in a low income area and the nearest grocery store for me is a distance away, you know, <laughs> okay. and that doesn't make it easy for me. Like when I first moved here, I had to fight for the, the curb cuts were not accessible. They, they had cur curb cuts, but they were steep. Mm -hmm. And even for me, it was dangerous for me to get down the curb cuts, but the city in the beginning was just like, well, they're there. So, you know, <laughs> It works, but I was like, no, they're not in code, and I fought it. <laughs> but it to them, it was good enough because it was this area. But it, fact is, it's a low income area. Gotcha. Thank you. You know. <laughs> yep. So it's it kind of it goes all together. So. All right, Nick. I'm gonna move over to you. Um, how have um, policies, investment, and current and past practices created the current disparate outcomes? And you know, what is the city's Office of Equity and Human Rights doing to mitigate some of those outcomes for now and in the future? Well, I, I, I wanna um, really, I guess, root my answer in, in what I started off with, which is um, the original theft of, of native land and black labor, and then the creation of this thing called white people um, and race is a social construct that um, that some people put together and, and came up with as a way to gain wealth and power and influence. Um, and the legacy of that is just obvious everywhere you look. Um, and so over our 146 year history as a city and for any city of the United States, this is gonna be true, uh, white males have been making the decisions. Um, and so if you've got huge wealth disparities already. You've got huge disparities in terms of access, citizenship, the ability to own a business, um, all the things that um, were separated based on race in this country. Um, and then you have the group that owns all of that making decisions about public good. You're going to have big disparities. Um, that's just, mm -hmm. I mean, as a natural course of events. And so uh, Lauren talked about redlining um, and Tacoma's got an equity equity index that uh, maps out different areas of opportunity and where opportunity is lacking in our in our city. And if you look at it, you can go to the city's website and, and look it up. Um, you look at along Sixth Avenue um, between like Orchard and Tacoma Ave, and north of there is basically most of the opportunity in the city in terms of access, livability, um, economy, and then south of there literally like across the street um, is, is low opportunity, low access. Uh, some of the things Crystal was talking about in terms of, mm -hmm. hey, there's not a supermarket here. There's not good, there aren't good roads here. Um, and so that's directly tied to the practice of redlining. And I thought it would be interesting to read um, 
one of the racially restrictive covenants that Tacoma had on the books, and these were other, the other part that Lauren was referencing, you know, the, the explicit uh, part of, of policy that kept people of color out of higher opportunity areas. Um, and this says, no part or parcel of land shall be rented or leased to or used or occupied in whole or in part by any person of the African or Asiatic descent, nor by any person not of the white or Caucasian race, other than domestic servants domiciled with an owner or tenant and living in their home. So these things can feel abstract if you don't, if you haven't looked at it, but when you actually see the language, that's policy. I mean, government itself um, excluding people of color from access to mortgages, access to wealth generating mechanisms. That's the government doing that. Um, mm -hmm. And it's easy to kind of compartmentalize racism and think it's, oh, this is something that happened and we kind of got over it in the 60s with Civil Rights Act. Um, but the, the legacy of it and the continuation of it is, is very clear. And you look at the, the, um, the dividing line, you know, on that equity index um, and you can see it. And it's, it's, it's very much uh, correlated with race. Um, and so you asked about the city of Tacoma and our office. Um, one, one of the things we're really focused on is uh, to Crystal's point about when community input happens, um, helping the departments get out ahead of their planning and get to community before they've developed this, this huge plan. Uh, sometimes they'll show up at community meeting like, hey, we did all this work. Isn't this great? And the community says, no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> go back. And they're like, well, no, we can't now because it's too late. So that, that's, that's got to be a continued focus um, where, you know, we asked all departments to create racial equity action plans this past year with this current two-year uh, biennium. Um, and the Planning and Development Services Racial Equity Action Plan Three of the things they're focused on, one is uh, building multilingual staff teams and being really explicit about recruiting multilingual staff so that there's, you don't have to call a language line to get to be heard. Um, committing more resources to the east side, more financial resources and hiring staff members so that they can, that, that uh, a staff member that could be 100% focused on community outreach um, instead of trying to just kind of build it into somebody's job who already has a full-time job hiring a full-time person to be out in the community and focused on that. Uh, and then access for after hours for community feedback because part of the issue of the wealth gap is that in general, white families have about 10 times the wealth as black families. And if you've got 10 times the wealth, you're gonna have a lot more chance and it's gonna be easier for you to connect with your elected officials to take that time to volunteer on that commission. Um, and expanding access for when people can provide feedback and how they can do it um, is another part of it. Thank you. And we have made some progress in that area with the hiring of a community outreach um, coordinator and, and, and trying, actually um, one of the learnings of 2020 is how to do engagement differently. And while um, we hate you know, being in these little boxes, um, we, it also has made um, meetings and things like that a lot more accessible to to people. Um, there's, also, there's the barrier of you know, internet access and computers and stuff like that, which do make it a little bit more complicated, but um, it, it has allowed people who might not be able to be a part of those conversations because of transportation issues, you know, um, having to get there, um, 
or the timing of the meeting. Um, like this allows, you know, we have, we have um, 100 people with us today um, that are probably able to be at home. They didn't have to leave work, come down to a place and then try to get back to work in their lunch hour. They can just click in and click out when it's time to click out. And so I think that that's one of the advantages that we've kind of learned um, through, through this, um, this year. The, the next question I wanna talk about is like, when we start to talk about stuff like this, I mean, I hate to leave people with just like, oh, here's all the things that are wrong and not really talk about what can we do to change it or what progress have we made in the areas or, or how do we help people figure out um, how to move that forward. So I want to open this up to all the panelists and whoever wants to go first and can just, uh, you know, just go ahead and jump in. But how, um, if you could enact a policy or a practice to resolve the inequalities around access, infrastructure, placemaking, um, and how it intersects with, you know, people with abilities and, you know, disabilities and people of color and communities of color and low-income communities, like, what would that, what would that be? And and how how would you, um, what advice or invitation would you give to communities to to, to join that work? I have a personal stake in this answer. <laughs> um, I think the first thing I would do is um, I would say that cities should be spending more time investing in their communities. So I think that's capacity building, um, building young leaders and leaders of all different walks of life. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, when you do that, it makes uh, sort of coming in and um, trying to launch a planning effort or, you know, doing a major infrastructure project a lot easier because you have folks that you've been in relationship with that you can engage and connect with to find out, you know, what they value, what they think should happen, how they think it should go down, right? Um, so, you know, one is sort of like capacity building and community, being in relationship with community. Two is letting community lead. We might be the experts at urban planning or equity issues or on communications, but I'm not the expert on someone else's neighborhood. They are the experts on their neighborhood. And so we should trust people to be able to tell us what they need. And that can happen when you're in a relationship and you're not rushing to, you know, hit the 10 items on your checklist, like you're genuinely really interested. And I think another component that has to happen is investment. So it's great to plan, but how are you gonna implement the plan? I think one of the biggest knocks on my profession is that we often plan and it sits on the shelf, it collects dust and we don't have the resources to go through an implementation or action plan and execute on those. So it's like, if you're going to go into community and ask people for their time, which they probably should be paid for, just to be clear, but if you're going to do that, then what are you gonna deliver for those folks? Like people have had their hearts broken time after time after time with us coming to them and not giving them all the things that we say that we're going to. So I think it's a multi-point plan, but I think it's really about community investment uh, community commitment, community relationship building. 
going to come back to you because I have a follow-up question. I'm, I'm going to uh, let Nick or Crystal answer the question that's on the table. Um, Nick, do you want to go ahead? Sure. Um, I, I really like everything Warren said. And um, Tanisha, also just I want to um, acknowledge the work of your office as I was answering in the last question I was thinking our, our office, and because you're the moderator, so it, it feels weird. So anyway, you've done amazing work on community outreach and Kenny, Kenny has led a lot of that. I just want to acknowledge that. Um, and um, as far as your question, I would encourage people to think about trying to separate individual issues from institutional issues, from structural issues, because when you try to think about this all at once, it, it, it's hard, uh, it gets confusing. And so uh, an individual issue might be uh, like for my white brothers, sisters out there, if you're hearing a person of color tell you something and you your body's reacting a certain way because you haven't heard like somebody, you know, asking you something a certain way before, um, monitor that. Like that's that's some issue that you have to like work out. Um, uh, and, and just think about like, why am I, responding this way. Um, a member of our um, Commission on Immigrant and Refugee Affairs asked this question to a number of city leaders, you know, we're, we're demanding this of you. Just reflect on how that feels. That's important um, because the, you know, the racial prejudice that's built into us, we're not going to just flip a switch and cleanse ourselves of it. It's got to be lifelong work. Um, mm -hmm. So there's an individual level, institutional level, um, which is, you know, how is the organization I'm a part of perpetuating institutional racism? And I say how, because it is, uh, not if it is, but it is, and how is it doing that? Um, and if you're surprised to hear that it is, uh, let's talk about that, um, because um, every institution in America perpetuates it somehow in some way. Um, and then stru the structural level, um, I think about uh, the structure of our education system, as one of the major drivers of the perpetuation of segregation and disparate outcomes in this country. Uh, there's a separate education system for wealthy people, the private education system. That system disproportionately favors white families and white children to be insulated in a private world bubble. And for transparency's sake, I went through that bubble um, and I'm working on unlearning a lot of the things that happened to me in that bubble. Um, but that, that's a huge part of community. If, if your upbringing is just around people that look like you and you see white kids doing well and having opportunities, you see black and brown kids not doing well, not having opportunities, you don't understand the history of it. What else are you to believe then that, then that there is some kind of inherent difference between people and that's false. So, um, so I, I think we need a serious reckoning with our, with our national education system. We need to get kids together at a young age and keep them together and force the parents to work it out. I would say um, in terms of just access for people with disabilities, um, again, speaking from just going from point A to point B outside, you know, on the sidewalk and stuff and inside buildings and everything. Um, it really, it's crazy because it, if you really think about it, from a wheelchair user's perspective, it is different. Like if you're in like South Tacoma versus university place, it, it is different inside the stores on the sidewalks and stuff, but 
like my, the example that I gave earlier um, when I moved into my apartments, if you see an issue, speak up about it, you know? And a lot of times I say this all the time to my neighbors and all this, but a lot of times people say like, you know, well, I don't know where to go. And, and you know, like they don't have the resources that I have because I'm already in the city and, you know, <laughs> all that. But a lot of times all you have to do is put it into Google. What do I do? You know, and it, it'll it come up and re- the names and offices and stuff will come up where, where you can put, file a complaint, you know, um, but at least make an effort to make some type of action to report it to somebody. And whoever you get connected to will more than likely lead you to somebody else. And I mean, even if it's just a conversation within the community, being real, even if it's a conversation conversation within the community, at least you're spreading the word that something has to change in that location. And who knows if it's going to end up, I mean, so many conversations I've had just because I'm that person to like, cause stuff to you know spread (laughs) um I just start talking about when things make me mad because I've literally flipped over in my wheelchair because of cracks in the sidewalk you know and that makes me mad I shouldn't have had to flip over in my wheelchair and those conversations end up spreading and causing different things to happen later on down the line without me even realizing it but it's because I opened my mouth do do you have a suggestion for people because I know, um, you know, I spent a lot of time working with children and families, and, and I know people want to advocate for themselves, but they don't always know where to go, and because systems have kind of shut them out, um, it's really frustrating, and it's, it's really frustrating when you call a place, and then they tell you to call a different place, and then they tell you to call a different place, and I'm not the right person. I mean, so do you have any advice for people on, on how to like where to start in navigating those types of, of things, and maybe some encouragement? encouragement not to get frustrated because it does pay off in the end but it is it is hard especially the first time that you're trying to figure something out right. um, personally you can always go to your local commission on disabilities too to um we always take um like the comments from the public mm-hmm. at every meeting we always take comments from the public we have meetings one, um, once a month so you can always go and we can guide you in whatever, whether it's a, you know, like from a restaurant or, you know, like Target or something like that. I'm just <laughs> naming something. Yeah. Um, we can lead you in, you know, whatever direction that you um, need to go to file a complaint. But yeah. So that would be what I would say. Lauren, when you were talking, you you said something about, you know, relationship building. And, um, and I think Nick kind of talked about this too, but like what I've noticed um, is that institutions sometimes have a really hard time because the conversation starts with like the history of the bad things that have happened. And sometimes employees take that really personal. And so there's like this, this gap because the person, the community member has the frustration with the institution and that has been an ongoing frustration the person at the in the institution maybe new has no experience with it, and they're feeling like, "Wait, you're yelling at me for something I knew nothing about." And like, do you have any any kind of words of wisdom to both the community member and and the person in the in the seat about how do we 
how do we get through that? How do how do we navigate that? Because to me, it's one of the places where I've seen the biggest block in communication is is that gap right there. So I think the thing I noticed most in community meetings is the number one most important thing to people is to feel heard. People just want to be listened to. And so if you got to let folks air it out, maybe someone just needs to air it out. But my experience is, you know, sometimes you get a curmudgeon and they just won't let stuff go. But most people, after they've aired it out like a time or two, they're past it because you've listened. And then they want to start talking about how do I continue to be involved? What changes can we make? Oh, you were honest with me. So I kind of understand where you are. What can we do? You know, I know you can't move on this, but what else can we do? That has been my experience time after time after time. If you listen to people and if you're honest with people, you build trust and then you have a place to go from there. Now, when you don't tell people the truth, expect to get lit up, <laughs> expect to get lit up um, because they don't believe, they already know that there's a problem with the institution, but now they know there's a problem with you and you have nowhere to go from there. So Nick, I'll ask you the, the other side of that. For community, how do you um, advise community, you know, to stay in that conversation long enough and, and, and what, what's their recourse when they feel like they, they're not getting the information they need, you know, how would you advise them to kind of stay in that? Because um, it, you need both in order to fix this problem. This is not a problem institutions are going to fix on their own. Um, so thoughts on that? Well, I'll share that I've seen uh, community groups come together around common causes. Um, one example of that is La Resistencia, which is a group that was formed in opposition to the Northwest Ice Processing Center. Um, and they, they have common cause in that. Um, and I think if if any any one of them were just working on their own, it would be a lot harder. Um, but finding folks who share your your passions in terms of advocacy, I think, is really important. Um, finding people that will listen, and then making sure you contact your elected representatives because they they work for you. Um, and if they don't, then um, you can work on bringing somebody else in. Um, so I I I would just share that if, if, if you're in the community and you're feeling strongly about something, I guarantee you other people are, um, and I guarantee you, you can find common cause with them and find someone who will hear you somewhere in our government. Hello, this is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma. It's no secret that Tacoma's real estate market is off the charts right now. And whenever I have a question about what's happening, I take them to everyone's favorite pod auntie, Marguerite Martin. I trust her for so many reasons, but one of them is that she's not trying to sell me a house. After 16 years helping Tacomans buy homes, she's now a professional real estate matchmaker. That means her entire focus is getting you connected with the best agent for what you need. She helps you find experts because no agent is good at everything. Marguerite knows all the agents and she knows their specialty. Tell her what you're looking for, and she'll help you swipe right for your perfect real estate agent. She helps me and my wife find an amazing agent to sell our condo downtown. And when we are ready to buy our next home, we'll turn to her for a match again. Best of all, getting a referral doesn't cost a dime. The agent pays Marguerite a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling. 
And you can rest easy knowing that you're going to get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. To get started, visit movetotacoma.com and hit the contact form. Thank you, Marguerite, for getting Channel 253 up and running and your ongoing support of local media. We're going to um, hop into these questions because I see there's several of them. Um, and if you have questions, go ahead and answer. We'll try to get to, through as many as we can in the next 17 minutes. Um, but um, there was several questions about SEPTED. And I don't know who's the best person to answer this, but SEPTED is um, crime prevention through environmental design. And there are some inherently maybe flawed um, ideas in SEPTED. And the questions range from, you know, some people are kind of advocating to, to get rid of SEPTED, which um, just for the audience, for people who are maybe aren't familiar with SEPTED, that's like the advice to like trim trees, put in certain lights so that neighborhoods can monitor themselves. Um, it's kind of a, an aid to like a neighborhood watch um, kind of a thing. Um, but there are people who have a feeling that it also encourages people to um, profile the people in their communities and, um, you know, not necessarily vigilante, but, you know, uh, take take uh, matters into their own hands in terms of interactions with police and stuff. So um, I really will open that up to, you know, I think Nick probably had something to say about it more, maybe too. Um, so um, your thoughts on SEPTED and, um, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we deal with it? Um, how can agencies change our orientation of policies um, you know, around, around SEPTED. Lauren, do you want to start? Sure. So, um, I think my thoughts on SEPTED are it's, it's very much appears to be something that was constructed assuming that everyone had the same baseline understanding and perspective and experience in the world. And it seems like, oh, you can't argue with those things, but, um, in fact, how people experience space, how people experience the world is obviously a very individual thing, but there's also specific groups that tend to have typical experiences in how they navigate public space. And it doesn't appear to me that SEPTED was developed um, from those multiple perspectives or keeping in mind that the experiences that I have as the author of this don't reflect how other people move through the world. This is true for black men. It's true for women. Uh, it's true for a variety of people. Um, and so I think um, there has to be some fearlessness here. Um, it's the same thing, I think, when people think about like policing and I'm gonna take it there because I just think it's such a, um, it's such a good example. When you think about what policing was in this country, it was, to hunt down slaves. Who were the people policing? It was white people, it was any white people, white kids, white women, white men to track slaves down. So when that is the foundation of how you are built, how do you fix it without dismantling it or, or breaking it down at a very basic level in order to build it back up? With SEPTED, you have to break down all the assumptions and bring people to the table to inform how you build it back up. It can't be built back up by the same people who wrote it the first time. It doesn't matter if they went to training 
or, or, or what about racial equity? No, you need to bring people to the table who are impacted by this and source the information from those people. So um, I think it's hard to argue that people want to feel safe and welcome in a space and that lighting is probably a good thing. But beyond the very most basic levels of SEPTED, I think it needs to be completely reconsidered. Do you have anything to add to that, Nick? No, I think I think um, Lauren really nailed it. I mean, the question is just how, how do you define safety for yourself and your community? And unless everybody's able to answer that question and have that 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 answer inform how this how how, yeah, how infrastructure and, and crime prevention is um, carried out, we're going to continue to have um, racist outcomes. Yeah, um, I, I always have a, my my kind of response to that. Always is. Um, if we really were into crime prevention through environmental design, we'd have better schools, um, better access to jobs. Um, because if you look at the communities that are most safe, that's what they have in common. They have access to good schools and they have access to good jobs. Um, now they have nice sidewalks and pretty tree-lined streets and things like that as well. But when you get down to the very root of what all of the neighborhoods that are safest have in common, regardless of who lives there, they have good schools and they have access to good jobs. And I think if we focused on those things, we'd probably have overall safer communities as well. Um, just my little rant. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, uh, there was a really good question in here about um, the city of Tacoma currently has a hands-off approach to key public infrastructures like sidewalk and street trees. When the city doesn't take responsibility for this infrastructure, we see gaps that are disproportionately impacts uh, on certain groups of people. Um, so there's two parts of the question. To what extent does the city currently enforce its sidewalk code? And two, could it do more enforcement? And would doing more enforcement actually end up doing harm, harming property owners with lower incomes? I cannot speak to the code stuff, but um, Nick, do you wanna take a stab at this one? Um. Well, I, I can't speak to the code either, but I can I can say that these um, these questions are good ones to be asking for for every every policy the city has on the books. Um, you know the the question of what what harm are we doing uh, is a question that every city administrator should be asking with with every decision. Um, you know, and it it also uh, gets back to Lauren's point about um, policing. You know, what what do we enforce and and what are we what what doors are we leaving open for racial bias to take over by enforcing certain things in certain ways? Um, you know, and so uh, we know that we know that race prejudice and racism and racial bias is real. Um, if we're not really careful about who we're who we're sending to enforce things, uh, the, the boundaries are putting on that. Um, thinking about connecting with the people, it's going to impact. Um, there's always that risk um, that you have, um, you know, in the case of law enforcement, a tragic outcome. Um, but in, in the case of, you know, sidewalk code and things like that, um, things that impact property values and impact um, people's livelihoods in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's been a lot of conversation within like environmental services about um, finding ways to get trees into lower income neighborhoods because it is, it, it is a um, complicated thing, right? So you get a free tree but then you also are required to perform the maintenance on a tree, which is not free. If the tree is struck by lightning or damaged, then you have to remove a tree, which is really not free. 
And so we've got to figure out throughout the whole system. And I think that's kind of what Lauren was talking about. When we know these systems are broken, you know, do we have the will? Because it's not can we, it's do we have the will to break these systems all the way down to their lowest compound and rebuild them in a way that is inclusive to everyone? Like if if Crystal was a homeowner and wanted a tree and we have free trees, we have to think about then how do we provide the support for Crystal to maintain a tree? Because once a tree gets to a certain side, maintaining it in a wheelchair might be harder. I don't know the answer to that question. Crystal would be the person that would answer that question. And we need to have those types of conversations because there's data through the equity index that shows us like this, the tree canopy is lower in low income neighborhoods. And I'm sure it's because people are like, just get that tree out of here because I don't have $600 to take down a tree later. Like, uh, that's not that's not in my budget, but their utility bill would be lower. Their you know air would be cleaner if they had the tree. So it's like we've got to figure out how to like really um, break those those types of things down. Um, we have a question from from Hallie. Um, is Tacoma or Seattle looking at recon reconciliation models or ways to serve reparations um, through the built environment, like unbuilding hostile um, spaces and hostile design? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, so I can answer um, for Seattle and then I'll kind of give a general answer on how that's handled. So what Seattle is doing right now is um, they're working a lot on community ownership. So um, either providing significant financial resource or um, giving property to uh, communities of color so that um, so that they have land control and then can dictate the outcome um, of uh, what happens in that space. So um, out of my office, um, there's a program called um, the Equitable Development Initiative that's led by my colleague, Uba Gardere. Um, and um, that entire team is just fantastic, but they really, you know, they, it's led by community. Community basically says, here's what we're proposing to do with this parcel, or we need support around figuring out how to develop. They give them money to um, develop that property or buy that property. Additionally, um, in Mayor Durkin's administration, there's been quite a few land transfers um, of properties um, in, um, in areas that have historically been um, areas where folks of color have built community who have lived and they've been transferring properties over. Um, but you have to understand that the scale of this intervention is like this relative to what the need is. Um, something else that happens, and it's just a part of like general practices and processes are when the city does, any city does, a uh, any city in the U.S. does like a major um, infrastructure or building process, uh, project, and this is true for uh, city government and private development, um, they have to do an environmental impact statement. And a lot of times out of um, those environmental impact statements, there's something called mitigation. So it's basically saying, we know that we're harming you or taking something away from you. Here is how we're going to give that back to you. That doesn't really address, it can do accumulative impacts, which means impacts that have built up over time, but it doesn't address 
systemic, deep-rooted racist practices. It doesn't hang that on like one developer or one city project. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. Obviously, it's going to be really hard because it's going to involve wealth transfer and people ceding power and control. And we know what happens when people have to give up things. So I think it's going to be a fight. Thank you. A question from Shauna. Um, I'm also working to create process for planning projects or programs that bring end users into the service design as general operating procedure early and continuously throughout the process of program. Have any of the panelists been working on this as well? And do we have any um, successes? Well, I'll share that the, um, the racial equity action plans that departments have put together uh, are a first step in that direction where there's going to be um, regular accountability on these issues uh, over the next, you know, we hope forever, but at least uh, we've got the plans now for the next two years um, where there is an expectation that there's, there's community outreach and engagement connected to the work that is aimed at equitable service delivery. Um, so we have a, we have a mechanism for that now, which is, um, which is, we're feeling good about. Um, and then uh, it, it is, uh, it's amazing how much uh, like amnesia can set in with this stuff. It's like, you know, you hear from, from a, um, a group, uh, it could be any, any group from any city. Uh, yes, we get it. We're going to engage early. And then just like collective forgetting. And then, so you have to kind of address that on different levels. Right. Um, I think it's a, it's a common phenomenon for all cities, but um making sure that there's some kind of regular um, accountability mechanism where by at a certain date, we're going to talk about this and we're going to talk about it again, check the progress. Um, it's gotta, it's gotta be built in. Otherwise the, the amnesia will, will set in and we'll, we'll be back where we started. Um, yeah, we only have time for one more question and there's actually three I'd like to ask, but we only have time for one. So um, how are issues addressed when legacy professional planning um, community is confronted with the perspectives of community-led um, perspectives that directly challenge the status quo and or individual perspectives? Um, you know, what, maybe tell us about a time that's happened in, in ways that maybe we should be thinking differently about navigating that. And hi, Eric, haven't seen you in a long time. Good to see you. <laughs> I'm also going to say hi, Eric. I haven't. Seen, I also haven't seen you in a long time. Thanks for the question. I'll be really short because I want other people to be able to chime in on this. But I think there's two things that need to happen. Number one, we need to see the profession continue to diversify. So that's that has to happen. And number two, organizations have to hold people accountable. Meaning, if an organization says I value racial equity and then doesn't hold their you know, executive leadership. So the folks in the mayor or community uh, manager's office, their directors accountable and then tie their performance to the metrics of their department. If they don't tell their managers, like I expect you to back up and support your staff as they go out in community um, and engage. And I want you to defend and support them with other department heads or your counterparts. So there has to be built in accountability from organizations requiring um, all of their staff to center racial equity and to center community. Uh, I think without that, this all falls flat. Um, leadership from the top is so key because you've got people in organizations that are going to resist 
this work. There are people that are kind of in the middle and not quite sure and doing their best. And then they're, you know, equity champions. And for those people in the middle, that puts them in a really tough spot. If community is telling them something, their own internal barometer is going wild because they've never heard such, you know, such a kind of feedback counter to what their narrative has been. And if their leadership is not telling them, go with that, go with community, um, that puts them in a tough spot. And so if, if the actual, if the, the top leaders in the organization aren't the, the biggest champions, that's always going to be a struggle. Any final words before we get, before we go? Crystal? Oh, can you hear me? I'm sorry. What was the last question that we were answering? Um, just the, what happens when professionals and, um, and community kind of engage and, and have different opinions and, and the ways to navigate that. So I really think that there needs to be a lot more communication going on. <laughs> I really do think it, like as I was saying earlier too, um, in my, I, I'm just coming from my experience in my kind of communities that I've just grown up in. A lot of people just are scared to talk. And I think a lot more communication needs to be going on. And if you have an issue, just speak about it, you know, and we, we were touching on it a little bit too, like rather than kind of the experts talking to the experts and, you know, that stuff going on and stuff, I really think it needs to be like the experts talking to community members more. I think that's a great way to end this conversation. Thank you for being with us. Um, uh, Thank you to the audience. Uh, Sorry, we were not able to get to everyone's questions. I'm going to turn it back to Laura for a few um, final comments and um, hope I'll see you all um, at February's Friday Forum. Thank you so much to all of our panelists uh, for sharing their expertise with us today and to Tanisha for moderating a great conversation. Um, And thanks to all of you for spending your time with us today to engage in this important topic. Um, Please join us on February 26th as we continue our series on racism and transportation policy uh, with a forum on street safety initiatives and on March 26th as we explore how policies go from ideas to implementation. You can find more information and register for these events uh, on our website, downtownonthego.org. Some things to keep an eye out for, uh, the Washington State uh, Historical Society is hosting a Facebook Live event on a similar topic next Thursday at 6 p.m. called Challenging History, Racism and City Development's Impact on Washington's Health Today. Um, And keep an eye out for the Crossing Division podcast's upcoming episode um, called What If There Is No Sidewalk? Amenities, Equity and Gentrification. Uh, where Evelyn Lopez will speak with Commissioner uh, Dorian Waller and continue on this conversation. Check out the Crossing Division website for engagement opportunities there. You can view the recorded forum on TV Tacoma next week or listen on channel 253. Thank you again so much for attending today and we look forward to continuing these conversations at next month's forum. Thank you. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com membership and join. Thank you. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounders B Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel 253.